You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1858th edition of St Edmund's Brenews Talk for the 9th of December 2021. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Mary Young and your readers are Carol and David Gooderham. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now for the headlines. Teams ready to act when Omicron hits. No need to halt Christmas celebrations. A town centre hotel. Plans are given a green light by the council. Festival called off again to focus on Apex. Festive shoppers urged to spend cash at local independent outlets. Suffolk's public health chief says the Omicron variant of COVID-19 will come to the county, but track and trace systems are ready to tackle it. Public Health Suffolk Director Stuart Keeble said the variant was not a reason to panic and people need not halt their Christmas plans. He urged the public to get their booster jabs and continue wearing face masks in enclosed spaces in order to reduce his impact. Mr Keeble told yesterday's local outbreak engagement board of public sector leaders that it will take another two or three weeks for more answers to emerge on the new variant. He said this is a new variant and clearly it has got people concerned, but we shouldn't be panicking. The fact is viruses mutate and that is what they do. We mustn't be surprised that we will see the spread of the Omicron variant in Suffolk. Transmission will take place. We will have it seeded from people travelling from other countries and what we will will do as a local system is to really focus down on those individual cases, identify contact tracing. If we can try to slow down any transmission that gives us as much time to get jabs into people's arms. We shouldn't stop seeing friends and family and it isn't that we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas but we know the things we need to do. We need to get our booster jab. If we are meeting up with groups of other people, then very much take a lateral flow test and face coverings when you are mixing with people, especially in corridors or small spaces. Wearing a face covering and regular hand hygiene are still important. Advice has been issued for people to get their booster jab as soon as they can after being invited and continue regular hand washing. Face coverings should continue to be worn in enclosed spaces and for those meeting up with others they should take a lateral flow test beforehand to help reduce the spread of the virus. Any activities which can be carried out online rather than in person should also be considered, Mr Keeble added. We know those small acts are worth it so we can continue doing the things we love, including spending time with our friends and family 
this Christmas. A West Southwark councillor has said she wholeheartedly endorses plans to reinstate a Bury St Edmunds Town Centre hotel after planning permission was granted to its developers. The historic Suffolk Hotel a building in the Butter Market, which was closed in 1996, but it is set to be rejuvenated in a major restoration project <coughs> from Jersey-based Gatsby Retail Limited. Plans for the site, which was an inn and hotel for several hundred years and has stood in its current form since the 19th century, were approved on November the 18th. Um, Councillor Julia Wakelam, who represents Epigate Ward, where the building is situated, said, Bury St Edmunds is becoming a prime visitor location and a high-quality town centre hotel can only add to its attraction. I think it's rather lovely that this historic building is becoming a hotel again. I wholeheartedly endorse the project. In the offices, a delegated report on the plans, it stated seven objections had been received in response to the listed building application and two planning application objections from a pair of nearby properties. These included access concerns, traffic issues, a potential for illegal parking to be exacerbated in the area, disruption during the building phase and light pollution. But the report concluded that both listed building consent and planning permission should be approved subject to conditions including the developers creating a noise management plan, a place for cycle storage to be identified, and showing details of biodiversity enhancement. In the plans for the 30-bedroom project, a new entrance would be created at the back of the Grade 2 listed building in High Baxter Street, with an atrium on the first floor that would form the heart of the hotel. The site currently includes Waterstones and the closed Edinburgh Woolen Mill shops, which would be retained and remodelled to bring back the hotel according to a heritage impact assessment. Councillor Wecklam added, I'm very pleased that the entrance will be in High Baxter Street, which will avoid hotel guests having to park their cars in the butter market, as well as greatly improving the look of that street. The developer's solution to the lack of car parking is sensible and I am glad the council has engaged. Finally, I am also delighted that we are not going to lose the lovely Waterstones. So yes, I am a fan. Following on from our first item, um, as many of you and most of you will know, on Wednesday evening, the Prime Minister announced a move to his Plan B to tackle coronavirus. Work from home guidance will return. Vaccine passports will become mandatory in large venues and mask rules will be extended to combat the Omicron variant. The first case of the Omicron variant was discovered in Suffolk earlier this week. A festival of music, dance and entertainment has been cancelled for the third year in a row as a council seeks to prioritise a venue's programme of events. The Bury St Edmunds Festival is usually held in May with dozens of performances and activities and was called off for the last two years due to the pandemic. However, West Suffolk Council has announced the festival will not go ahead in 2022 to help ensure the Apex in Bury, which organises the event, can book and market a full programme. Councillor Joe Rayner, Cabinet Member for Leisure and Culture at the Council, said the priority must be in getting the Apex 
at the Ark Shopping Centre fully back up and running, as the festival takes many months of planning and involves a huge amount of work from the venue. During the pandemic, the Apex had to cancel or postpone many performances, and given the level of uncertainty we all faced, it wasn't in a position to so easily book ahead, she said. Those that were postponed are now being rearranged. The Apex is also working to get a full programme of events planned going forward. This is to maximise the performance of the Apex, not just in terms of the events we put on, but also to further support its use as a community venue for hire. Councillor Rayner added, Given the need to prioritise the Apex events programme, we think it is prudent to cancel next year's festival. We will, of course, support the work of our partners in organising and putting on other festivals and events across West Suffolk. Shoppers have been urged to spend their pennies with the region's independence as Christmas shopping begins to ramp up. With folk across the east of England splurging this December, the value of their spend has, has never been so important. That's because for every pound spent with an independent, 63p ends up back in the local economy. But according to research by the Centre for Local Economic Strategies, just 5p ends up in nearby businesses if that pound is spent at a national. And with this weekend marking Small Business Saturday, business leaders have urged people to think before they spend. Michelle Ovens, director of the Grassroots Campaign, said, We all need to show small businesses our love this weekend. Not only do they make a massive contribution to our economy, but an immeasurable difference to all our lives. Despite demonstrating incredible entrepreneurialism and agility, alongside the support they've shown staff, customers and communities, many are still facing a really tough time. Small Business Saturday is a fantastic chance to get behind these firms and say a big thank you for how amazing they are. Candy Richards, Development Manager for the East of England at the Federation of Small Businesses, said, This Christmas, it's so important to support our small businesses and independent retailers. For many of them, this time of year can be make or break. And after such a challenging year, I would urge everyone to show their love for small businesses. She added, We are fortunate that we have so many wonderful and innovative independent retailers and small businesses who have a real passion for what they do. Many people value their specialist advice, carefully sourced items, and the difference that they make to their local community. A gift from a small business is something special. You will not only be purchasing a unique present that your family and friends will love, but you'll also be helping that business to build and grow. I can't think of a better gift than that this Christmas. And now for the general news. The transformed interior of a vacant Berry St Edmunds shop was unveiled to its first young visitors last week. <coughs> the former top shop at the Ark Shopping Centre has become the Berry Santa experience, boasting an enchanting woodland, elves workshop and a cosy grotto. More than 2,000 £10 tickets for the experience were snapped up within weeks of going on sale, with organisers releasing a further 500 tickets on Wednesday. 
It is believed the project, which cost just under £83,000, subsidised by the ARC, and £25,000 contributed by the Town Council, will bring an estimated 5,000 people into the town over the festive period. Steve Bunce, ARC manager, said, It has been a lot of hard work from a lot of people, but with a lot of great support from everyone across Berry. The launch weekend was a great success. It was fantastic to see the little ones enjoy themselves in the experience and really getting into the festive spirit. The experience is split into three areas. A Narnia-inspired snowland with an animal hunt, the elves' workshop and Santa's grotto, where youngsters will meet the man and receive a gift. Very Free Press journalists Russell Clayton, Kevin Hurst and Camille Berryman were among the first to visit the grotto with their families during opening weekend. Kevin said, The attention in making it special, my daughter's reaction to meeting Santa and memories it has made are things no money can buy. Russell said, There is nothing very impressive about the outside, but inside, as we were immediately greeted by an enthusiastic and convincing elf, it very soon became a magical experience. Camille said, I'm not sure how many years we have of my daughter remaining a believer, but she was still talking about her visit to Santa two nights later. The project, a joint collaboration between the ARC, our Berry St Edmunds and Berry Town Council, will see 20% of all ticket sales donated to Suffolk Mind. The Berry Santa experience is on until, until Christmas Eve. For more details and ticket availability, go to www.arc.berrystedmonds.com. It's a familiar story. Cinderella is stuck inside and are denied the chance of a magical night out. We've all been there these last two years. Just as our theoretical heroine shall go to the ball, Berrys and Edmonds will finally go to the panto. After a two-year intermission brought on by the pandemic, the sparkle has returned to Theatre Royal Berrys and Edmonds with a show for all the family. Cinderella is a smashingly entertaining crowd-pleaser packed with laughs, music and heart. Becky Sanna is thoroughly engaging as the put-upon leading lady we all root for, while Beth Tucky is the deliciously wicked stepmother Griselda Grizzle. Ugly stepsisters Kylie and Millie Grizzle, Chris Clarkson and Craig Painting, are a chaotic and gaudy delight of pratfalls and induendo. They need a man, a prince in fact, but they might settle for an unsuspecting audience member. A highlight is a makeover scene with the delightful Howie Michaels as Buttons. It's great to see Chris Clarkson back for his fifth Theatre Royal Panto. With inventive spins on popular tunes, the cast impress with their vocals, especially Samuel Knight as Prince Roger and Becky Sanna. Felicity Hulbrook as Miss Van Dinney and Rosemary Annabella Numra as the Fairy Godmother are also great fun. It is a joy to see the Theatre Royal busy again, filled with cheers, laughter and warmth. Cinderella is an early Christmas treat for all ages and a welcome return of this much-needed holiday staple. You will cheer, boo, dance, sing and applaud. It was worth the wait. 
bring on Robin Hood next year. Cinderella runs at the Theatre Royal until January the 16th. When Stacey Lascelles decided to send a friend a Christmas hamper filled with Suffolk goodness last year, she searched around to see what she could find. I couldn't find anything without ordering everything individually and thought, there's a gap in the market here, she said. It's been a long process, but I've now launched my own company with bespoke hampers after linking up with local producers and supplied my first hamper last month. Stacy, 31, who lives in Wetherden, has called her business Hampers of Hawley, where it is based. Each selection of goods is presented in a hand-woven, sustainable wicker basket which can be personalised and delivered free via courier to anywhere in the country. She supplies hampers for anything from a small thank you to a big brand event. From Suffolk vineyards and family orchards to award-winning bakeries of the county's heritage coast, we present the best of Suffolk and beyond, she said. Our suppliers also promote sustainability and the benefits of homegrown produce, from handmade chocolates to English wines, fine tea and luxury jams. Local suppliers include Giffords Hall Vineyard, Pump Street Chocolate, Scarlet and Mustard, Maynard House Juices, Marimba and Harrison James. Contents are often handmade and small batch and are carefully selected for their quality, company ethics and plastic-free packaging, said Stacey. At the moment, I'm running the business alongside my work in marketing, but I have several helpers, including my mum, Michelle, and husband, John. I'm hoping it will become a full-time business. We've got a large stock, and all people need to do is browse the website to make their choices. Stacey hopes Hampers of Hawley will one day rival the likes of those from Fortnum and Mason. I'd say, with your loved one's name on the outside and local delights on the inside, Hampers of Hawley provide the perfect personal Christmas gift, said Stacey. We also have a few items from Norfolk and Essex. We're now taking orders for Christmas and then we aim to focus on other celebrations such as Valentine's Day as well as other events such as Mother's Day and Gentleman's Hampers for Father's Day. More via www.hampersofhawley.com It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas in Stowmarket after the town's festive fair proved a success. The Stowmarket Christmas Fair boasted an array of attractions and entertainment on Sunday with people also enjoying the Christmas Tree Festival at St Peter and St Mary's Church. Highlights included festive storytelling at the John Peel Centre, Santa and his reindeer at the Museum of East Anglian Life, as well as arts and crafts at Stowmarket Library. Carl Daniels, Communities and Partnership Manager for Stowmarket Town Council, said, The Stowmarket Christmas Fair was a huge success, with a constant flow of people attending throughout the day, which was great to see. Visitors to the Christmas Fair were able to admire the festive lights all day long and visit various locations across the town centre. The market traders had a great day and hopefully the independent shops did as well. He added that there was a successful charity fair at the Red Gables and shoppers enjoyed picking up Christmas gifts at the Arts and Craft Fair at the Mix. The Regal played festive films and there were also fairground rides, live music 
an ice rink and other entertainment. The festival at St Peter and St Mary's Church features more than 360 trees and is open Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays from 10am to 2pm. A new service is opened offering expert advice for people's hearing needs. Check My Hearing is based in the health centre above Crowsdale's Pharmacy in the Travis, Bury St Edmunds. It's a new private venture by audiologist Joshua Knight, 32, who decided to go into business himself during lockdown. Lockdown gave me time to put my plans together and get the business underway, said Joshua from Sudbury. I've worked in audiology for more than 10 years, both for high street chains and global hearing aid companies, and have always wanted to start my own business. With our service, customers can expect a gold standard service using the latest technology, with their hearing assessed for lifestyle needs. But I'm also keen on caring for our customers, which I think is a service that is missing from a lot of the high street chain services. We aim to guide patients to the correct technology and offer a bespoke experience for anyone who visits us. Joshua trained initially with the NHS and was first inspired to become an audiologist after witnessing his father's hearing loss problems. My father first had problems with his hearing in his 50s and now lives with severe to profound hearing loss, said Joshua. Spending my youth in audiology clinics, I become fascinated with ears and generally how we hear, and this is where my passion for creating a family-centred to hearing loss began. Hearing loss can affect also those around the person with hearing problems, and there is a certain amount of counselling that goes with the audiologist's role. Check My Hearing offers free hearing tests and a free trial of the latest hearing aid technology. An independent business, it can provide access to all hearing instruments. We also look to match equipment and cost to people's lifestyles, whether that be from hearing the TV correctly to a noisy work environment, said Joshua. We also offer an earwax removal service, which is important for hearing to get this done professionally. People should never use cotton buds for this, for example, as it can pack the wax in and lead to problems. The president of, of uh, Bury St Edmunds Cricket Club says he is a delighted after a £10,000 grant application for new nets was given the green light by town councillors. The money was allocated by Bury Town Council. It will be used to build three new enclosed cricket nets at the club on Nowton Road. David Barker, MBE, who is president of the club, said he was absolutely delighted the club had received the grant. We were just delighted to get that funding because it makes such a difference, he said. We hope to replace the nets during the course of next year. The nets will replace two old dilapidated ones and it is hoped they will be used during some of the off-season months. David said not only would the nets be useful for club members, but the wider community as well, including boys and girls of all ages and abilities. The cricket club members will get priority, but if a, a local school wants to use them, it will be made available to the local community, and that's what it's all about, he said. Councillors have marked the topping out ceremony of the new Needham Lake Cafe and Visitor Centre 
by announcing its name following a public vote. Just under 2,000 people voted for their favourite name for the Suffolk site, with almost half choosing Duck and Teapot, followed by the Swan's Nest and Quacker's Café. At Mid-Suffolk's most popular free attraction, Needham Lake provides an open space for families and visitors to get close to nature, exercise or to enjoy the open space. Councillor Julie Flatman, Mid-Suffolk District Council's Cabinet Member for Communities, said, I'm delighted that so many people took the time to vote for their favourite name for the cafe and visitor centre. Duck and Teapot is a quirky and memorable name and reflects the setting close to Needham Lake. The topping out marks an important milestone in the development and we look forward to welcoming visitors to to the opening in the new year. The building itself has been designed to complement the surrounding natural environment and meets the District Council's climate change ambitions. It features several green features including the introduction of bird boxes, solar panels, sustainable drainage, an air source heat pump and has used sustainable building materials as part of the build. The duck and teapot will be managed by the team behind Cabbages and Kings, the popular cafe at The Mix in Stowmarket. Dave Pepper, Director of Cabbages and Kings and Chief Executive of The Mix, said, We can now begin to feel what the completed cafe will be like and are really excited about welcoming people in and making the venue a fantastic addition for everyone who visits Needham Lake. Once completed, which will be in the coming weeks with an official opening in early 2022, the Duck and Teapot will offer a choice of indoor and outdoor seating. The visitor centre will be a flexible community event space and the site will have changing places facilities, making it more accessible for people with disabilities. A national newspaper has named two of the prettiest Suffolk villages as among the best to visit in the UK. Included on the Times list of the, con- of the country's prettiest villages, Orford and Lavenham were picked for their haunting beauty and fantastic vintage shopping, respectively. This comes after Orford was recommended in the Guardian's list of 30 of the best villages to visit, and Lavenham was chosen by the Sunday Times as one of the 50 best villages in which to live in the UK. The newspaper noted the nuggety keep of Orford Castle was the only reminder that the former rotten borough had once been a bustling port, which they described as the Plymouth of the Middle Ages. However, rather than focusing on this bustling past, they emphasised the quiet of the present celebrating the fact that the broad lanes have little have little louder than cooing wood pigeons on rose-tussled red-brick cottages. The nautical nature of the former town did, however, intrigue the times, who were fascinated watching sailors mess about in boats and excited by the potential of a ferry trip across the River Orr to the National Trust's Orford Ness Nature Reserve. The National Paper also celebrates Pump Street Bakery, recommending its sourdough sandwiches and endorses a £135 stay in the Crown and Castle Hotel. In Lavenham, the Times loved the architecture of the village, calling it the best-preserved Tudor village in England, and waxed lyrical about the wonky 
half-timbering and candy-coloured houses. Must-sees included Shilling Street, High Street and the Splendid Marketplace, home to the National Trust's Lavenham Guildhall Museum. They also recommend visitors stop at the De Vere House, which famously played Harry Potter's childhood home in the film The Deathly Hallows, Part 1. Here, the boy wizard first defeated Lord Voldemort and suffered the death of his loving parents, Lily and James. The Times suggested the the Lavenham Greyhound for posh pub food, while the Swan, which appeared in The Good Hotel Guide, is recommended as a place to stay. And now we have some letters. And the first is from Barry Peters, who is the editor of the Berry Free Press. And the heading is, Tributes as one of our heroes says a final goodbye. I love a good spy story, a wartime drama and especially a James Bond tale. Stories of heroism, sacrifice and bravery. But I was born in the 1960s, so war itself has always been at arm's length, something to be seen on a television screen. Detached. Brian Hanrahan's famous Falklands piece to camera about counting planes out and counting them back in is the closest I came. War from the armchair. Reading through the tributes this week to D-Day veteran Bernie Howe brought home the realities and dangers of wars gone by. Bernie was lucky to escape with his life when a plane's undercarriage collapsed on takeoff. He also survived several crashes. Real heroes simply go about their business without fanfare. Bernie died this week at 97. He was part of the squadron which flew over France ahead of the Allied invasion in World War II. Bernie is part of a generation who we remember each November, but we should keep them in our hearts for every month for the huge price they paid. Uh, The next letter is from Richard O'Driscoll. And it's headed, Years of Austerity Have Hurt the NHS. Along with fellow members of the Labour Party, I was proud to support the Midwives Rally and March in Barrytown Centre last weekend. The purpose of the rally was about raising public awareness to the appalling conditions in which, in which midwives are expected to work. It was also about letting people know just how depleted this service has become. Examples were given of hospitals turning away planned admissions of expectant mothers. Resource pressures within hospitals have also meant that at times less than adequate care is available. When the government, including our local MP Joe Churchill, has been challenged on this subject, they have responded with platitudes and false statistics claiming that more money is being allocated to midwifery. The reality is something quite different. The years of austerity experienced by this and other parts of the NHS have left services with serious shortfalls and staff feeling demoralised and undervalued. I am aware that this is but one example of many of our public services that are no longer operating at a safe level. It is, however, a poor reflection on our society that we are not able to provide adequate care in this most basic of services 
that affects us all. This letter is from Regina Collander and it comes via email. The heading is Cycle Lanes Make My Journey Safer. Regarding the story about the cycle lanes and bollards, which was in the Berry Free Press in November 26, I live off Risgate Street in Berry St Edmunds and work in one of the upper schools on Beaton's Way and, as a cyclist, use both routes very regularly. I was sceptical about the cycle lanes, but for me they have proven very useful and offer a safe place to cycle on the road along very busy traffic, especially with the, road, with the roadworks near the new Sixth Form College. In Bury, the issue with most cycle paths is that they are not clearly marked and treated as a free-for-all, especially by drivers, who use it as extra parking. This is prevented by the bollards, which also offer pedestrians a safe way to pass crowds of students and pupils on their way from the station or to and from school a vital point for some in times of social distancing. The maintenance and cleaning not only of the cycle paths but of all transport routes is a real problem and it can almost feel like the council has started its own rewilding project given by the amount of grass, weeds and sometimes sapling trees growing in our side roads and footpaths. I can see that shopkeepers are frustrated and can lose business because of missing parking spaces Yet I think the bus drivers will agree that at least the flow of traffic has improved along Risbygate Street, as cars do now only park on one side of the double yellow lines on this road. And the next letter is from Pam Dennis, and the heading is Cycle Path is Now Greatly Narrowed. For 35 years I have been cycling from Great Barton to Bury St Edmunds along the A143 to get to my work as a nurse at West Suffolk Hospital and to do my shopping in two boxes on my bike. For the first 15 years or so, I rode along the road with the traffic. One day I was thrilled to be told by the workmen that they were constructing a cycle path. This has been marvellous as traffic volumes have greatly increased. However, during the last few years, landslip has greatly narrowed this once wide and safe lane in some places. The thunder of lorries and fast cars coming towards me and the tsunami of water is terrifying. It's possible to see the width of the original cycle path from the reflector posts now set deep into the landslip. I've approached the county council to send a small digger to clear the soil, grass and mud but they say that it is not bad enough to need clearing. How frustrating then to witness the, the a pointless, expensive nuisance of bollards on Beaton's Way and Risbygate Street. This letter from Dinah Groden of Saxmundham. Dental crisis, one solution. Sir... NHS dentists are a vital resource in keeping the nation healthy and productive. Absences from work due to sickness or illness result in loss of production and costs to the economy. This is especially noticeable in small to medium firms where every person is vital. In order to maintain the health of the nation, people need to be able to access frontline NHS services such as dentists and GPs easily. I believe that access to a dentist should be on the same basis as access to a GP, free at the point of contact, 
and available in every area. We would not think of paying to see a GP for a checkup or for referral to a hospital, so why should we pay the dentist for the same service? Both medical professionals can identify diseases and illnesses early and thus prevent further complications that would cost the NHS more if allowed to progress, so why the difference? Many of us take preventative medicine and exercise regularly, keeping an eye on our weight in order to stay healthy. If we think that a pain or ache may be something serious, we go to our GP to be assessed and reassured. The dentist should be no different. A regular visit to the dentist would allow them to identify problems such as oral cancer, gum disease, abscesses and stomach disease. A timely filling prevents further problems and an extraction can cure pain. This regular visit can be out of reach for many people on low income as they only access the dentist when absolutely necessary. Many people are missing the vital early diagnosis that can save the NHS a lot more money further down the line. As the old sayings go, a stitch in time saves nine. Look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. This change in our thinking about frontline services would, I believe, save lives and lead to a more efficient NHS. In making this change, we should also address the complicated contracts with private clinics and other standalone ent entities. Never forget it is our money the government is spending and we need to know exactly how much money is spent and where. If we are given the plain facts, we can decide where our money is spent for the best results. I believe the NHS is vital and that people want to preserve it in entirety as a public resource. A good start would be making dentistry on a par with GPs as a free frontline service. And the next letter is from Martin Lightfoot. And the heading is Views from a Retired Dentist. Sir, as a long-retired dental surgeon, I read with great sadness the difficulties faced by many local people to obtain affordable dental treatment. Unfortunately, for dental treatment to be carried out safely, effective sterilisation procedures have to be in place to prevent transmission of hepatitis, HIV, CJD, as well as the latest adversary, COVID. Also, a lot of disposable, one-use equipment needs to be used, adding to the cost. Unless the NHS contracts for dentists have changed, the dental surgeon has to provide all the premises, equipment, materials and staff costs himself, and is only reimbursed by the NHS by payment of fees for treatment delivered. I can see the quandary that dental surgeons now face, as unless the fees paid by the NHS are sufficient to cover the costs of running a dental practice, then it is just not viable to practice under the NHS. When I started practice in Bury St Edmunds in 1964, we were sufficiently funded then to be able to provide excellent treatment for every patient whether rich or poor, on the NHS. I find it very disappointing for both patients and dental surgeons that this is now not possible. A letter from Anthony Hurden of Bury St Edmunds. Travelling at the speed of lights. 
Recently, modern street lighting has been installed in some areas of Berry Town Centre, providing pedestrians and drivers with a safer environment at night. Over 20 years ago, you reported on research work that had been done by the National Physical Laboratory, in which I was involved, that showed clearly that traditional sodium street lighting was unsafe compared to other forms of lighting, and it created an unsettling environment for pedestrians. It's taken the Council over 20 years to begin to act on this evidence. Given this speed of response, I don't expect my recent plea for effective speed controls in the town centre to be implemented to be implemented within my lifetime. And the next letter is from David Jacobs and is headed, I'd rather be living here than elsewhere. I so agree with your correspondent, Willoughby Goddard, in his reply to Mr Critchley's rant about our NHS and our country in general. Compared to many countries throughout the world, many of which don't even have a so-called health service, our country still remains the country of choice in what we provide. The problem here is simply that however much money is thrown at the NHS, it will never be enough because demand will always outstrip supply. An ageing population and big advances in medical research have all contributed to this, and which every government of whatever colour have grappled with down the years. Apart from a health service, of course, we have a democracy, and indeed a free press, which we all take for granted. This allows Mr Critchley to air his views, a luxury which, sadly, many countries don't even have. Thousands of people, as we know, are fleeing persecution from either dictatorships or socialist republics, with eye-watering inflation and plenty where corruption is endemic. In addition, many of these people admit they simply want a better life. I totally acknowledge that much in this country could be handled better under this government and indeed under the last one and the one before that, etc, etc. But I am darn sure I would rather be living here when I see the state of the world as it is. Thus, I say to Mr Critchley, if he thinks our health service and everything else here is so unbelievably awful and such a terrible place in which to live, may I very politely suggest he may want to try and live elsewhere. And now back to the general news. Customers have been getting used to a new look supermarket this week. The Waitrose store on Robert Bowie Way, Bury St Edmunds, opened its doors officially on Friday. Work, however, has been going on since September, while the store has still been open. The refurbishment has seen the store being given a full makeover, including a new layout, new counters, new customer toilets and car park with extra spaces. The Wait and Rose Cafe has also had a makeover and now includes laptop and phone charging points. The store is part of the John Lewis Partnership and employs some 150 staff. Work was carried out in the day and also through the night to complete the job. A newsagent and convenience store in Newmarket has been forced to shut down because the building it is in was said to be structurally unsafe. McColl's in St Mary's Square closed last month with staff sent home when concerns were raised about the basement structure.
The building housing the shop is Grade 2 listed and, as a result, special consent will have to be given by the planning authority before any work can be started. This week a danger sign was posted on the front door, but customers who had their newspapers delivered by the shop have been left in the dark. We have not been told anything, said one, who did not wish to be named. I expected a notice on the door or something, but there has been nothing. Suffolk News has tried to contact McColls, which has over 1,200 managed convenience stores and news agents across the country, for further information, but the company has not responded to either telephone call or emails. Members of Newmarket Town Council's planning committee were made aware of the closure when they met on Monday. TV Times team is using the latest advancement in archaeological technology to carry out new research into Suffolk's world-famous Anglo-Saxon Royal Burial Site. The National Trust has launched a new research project with Time Team in the hope of shedding new light on Sutton Hoo. It involves using new non-invasive geophysics surveys, ground-penetrating radar of the Royal Burial Ground and magnetometry of a field close to another known Anglo-Saxon cemetery. The discovery of an Anglo-Saxon ship burial at Sutton Hoo in 1939 has enjoyed renewed national interest this year thanks to the hugely successful Netflix film The Dig. Laura Howarth, Archaeology and Engagement Manager at Sutton Hoo, said the Sutton Hoo landscape is layered with people's stories stretching back over the centuries. And whilst we know some of these stories, there is still so much more we could learn. These non-invasive techniques paint a subsurface picture of what lies beneath our feet allowing us to hopefully discover more about how different people have used this landscape whilst causing the least amount of damage. Using the latest in cutting-edge technology, the survey techniques being used here have the potential to detect archaeological features such as field boundaries, building foundations and ploughed-out burial mounds. But we shall just have to wait and see what is actually discovered. Time Team's new archaeology investigations will be streamed online via YouTube. Working alongside National Trust archaeologists, a series of investigations have been planned to build up a more complete picture of Sutton Hoo. Ground-penetrating radar has been used on the Royal Burial Ground, including some areas for the first time, while magnetometry surveys have also taken place on a scale that's not been possible before with high resolution next to the High Hall exhibition, where in the early 2000s an Anglo-Saxon folk cemetery was discovered. Tim Taylor, creator and series producer of Time Team, said, The dig was about one man and one woman's desire to find out more about our past. I think Basil Brown and Mrs Edith Pretty would be delighted and intrigued about the new technology. Complementing our work with the National Trust, Time Team will also be working with Professor Martin Carver and the Sutton Hoo Ships Company to film an exclusive documentary about the reconstruction of the amazing Sutton Hoo ship. It's safe to say we're looking forward to being immersed in the Sutton Hoo story. More than a quarter of UK bird species are seriously threatened, with familiar species such as swifts and greenfinches 
joining those most at risk, experts warn. Around 70 of the UK's 245 assessed birds are now red-listed for conservation concern, a new assessment shows. Newly red-listed species include swifts, house martins, purple sandpiper, Montague's harrier and greenfinch, warns the assessment from groups including the British Trust for Ornithology, RSPB, Wildlife Trusts and the National Trust. Overall, the red list has grown by three species since the last assessment in 2015, with 11 more birds red-listed, but six moved to amber and two no longer assessed. Swifts have moved from the amber list to red in the face of a 58% drop in their populations since 1995, and house martins join them due to a 57% fall since 1969, joining other birds which migrate to sub-Saharan Africa, such as cuckoos and nightingales. Greenfinches have gone from green-listed to the red list, following a 62% population crash since 1993, due to a severe outbreak of the disease trichomosis. Experts also raise concerns over wildfowl and wader populations which spend the winter in the UK, such as Buick swans, the Golden Eye and Dunlin, which have joined the Red List. And now we have a feature. The BBC Look East presenter Amelia Reynolds spoke frankly to Mark Nichols about returning to the screen and the job she loves following her recovery from bowel cancer and a new perspective on life. We sit in a bright, naturally lit corner of Amelia Reynolds' home near Norwich. Music is not necessarily in the air, but it is in my line of sight as we drink tea and coffee. A piano is central, surrounded by guitars, a saxophone and a clarinet on stands. The signs of a very musical family. Amelia is upbeat, positive, but also reflective having just returned to the regional TV screens as a presenter on BBC Look East. Regular viewers had, of course, noticed her absence for some six months, which was, as she revealed recently, a tough and determined fight against a rare form of bowel cancer. November brought the news she had been waiting for, that she was clear of the disease and ready to get back to the job she loves. Amelia has worked for BBC Look East for 20 years, presenting bulletins and more recently concentrating on the Politics East programme, recorded on a Friday and broadcast on Sunday mornings. While that may see her in front of camera and under the lights, she does reveal that she did initially have another, not altogether dissimilar career in mind. I wanted to be an actress, she confesses. Having studied English and drama at Exeter University, where she was also actively involved with university radio, her initial aspirations were the RSC and playing the likes of Lady Macbeth. I auditioned for the Bristol Old Vic, but did not get in, so I thought about other drama schools. But perhaps I did also have one of those life moments and realised that this was a sign that I should pursue journalism and broadcasting. 
Amelia's introduction to broadcasting was certainly interesting and international, with her first assignment reporting on AIDS orphans in Uganda for an independent radio production company, which made programmes for the BBC World Service and Radio 4. That was amazing, she continues. I was able to travel to amazing places and hear people's stories, and that was how I got into journalism and reporting. From there, she worked with cable TV organisations in the eastern region, where she was encouraged and inspired by the journalists around her. Recalling the words of her early mentors about listening to people and hearing their stories, she said, I firmly believe that what is really at the heart of good journalism is giving a voice to people who are not normally heard. Later, she realised her dream of working for the BBC, having secured a job as a researcher at Look East, and worked her way up from there. There are, all, there are challenges, but meeting so many people from diverse backgrounds is what Amelia enjoys the most. I love people, and this job allows you to meet all sorts of people. I've been lucky enough to go to number 10 and interview a Prime Minister, not the current one, been invited into people's homes who may be going through really difficult times, or allowed to ask the questions chief executives maybe need to answer, she says. It's a ticket to all sorts of extraordinary places and experiences. While now studio-based as a presenter, she's had stints as an out-and-about reporter and was Look East's Essex reporter at one stage. Along the way, she has covered major stories, including the Sewer Murders, the 7-7 London bombings, plus election night dramas, as well as the so-called Plane Spotters trial in Greece, involving a Suffolk couple who ended up being accused of spying. This was later made into docudrama, where Amelia did finally achieve her acting dream and played herself in it. It is, however, the affinity with the regional audience that is so special. I think it's the difference about working in regional media. We have a different type of relationship with our audience, she adds. People see me out and about in the community. My kids go to the local school. I'm part of this place, and that creates a different relationship with the viewer. But there are pressures and challenges of chasing stories and presenting late-night bulletins, especially with a young family, though she also acknowledges that is simply part of the job. And after the last six months I've had, I'm just so pleased to be back and doing something I thought I would never get back to doing, she adds. That difficult few months started earlier this year when Amelia suspected something may be wrong. <clears throat> Having noticed blood at times when she went to the toilet, initial tests revealed nothing untoward. But as it persisted, she returned to her GP and was referred to the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital for further investigative tests and a biopsy. After a couple of weeks, it was confirmed that she had a relatively uncommon form of bowel cancer, which often exhibits similar symptoms to piles and is more common in people than you would think. There are so many people that have been through similar who do not need me to say that it is tough, but it is the hardest thing I've had to do. But by mid-November, an MRI scan revealed the tumour had gone. There will be more scans and tests, but this stage of the journey is over. She remains grateful for the support of the Norfolk and Norwich nursing and oncology staff and knowing that they were always available throughout the treatment and recovery. They are under pressure with the ongoing pandemic, but you do not feel you are alone, she says. Early November saw Amelia back on screen, delivering lunchtime bulletins and refocusing on politics east. After I did the first one, 
I remembered what it's like. I love doing it and I'm looking forward to getting back into the swing again. It's great to be back. With husband David, who was previously with the BBC Inside Out programme, it is back to balancing work and family on a daily basis for two busy regional TV journalists on opposite channels. Away from work, Amelia enjoys the countryside and heading to the coast, dog walking and playing the piano alongside Annabelle on saxophone and Cleo, who plays the clarinet. Amelia too is learning to play the saxophone while David is the guitarist. Born in High Wycombe, her parents Norman and Sarah moved to Fressingfield when she was one and still live in the same house. I see myself very much as an East Anglian girl, she adds. While she also loves to ski, a more immediate wish is for a family holiday in the sun for 2022. But in the meantime, it's the delights of East Anglia. I love Salthouse, the North Norfolk coast and Woolberswick and Southwold because I grew up in Suffolk. Those places have lots of memories for me and I also prefer them out of season when it's chilly and windy, but without the crowds. Most of all, though, she adds, I'm just so grateful for the here and now. And this feature is um, about Joe Churchill. It's entitled Taking on a New Role at a Pivotal Time in the World's History. Um, MP Joe Churchill has moved to a new government department at a crucial time. The last two months have been a period of adjustment for Joe Churchill, MP for Bury St Edmunds. In September, following a government cabinet reshuffle, she was moved to take up parliamentary undersecretary role in the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Her new posting could not have come at a more uh, pivotal time. COP26, which was a two-week event in Glasgow, was held at the end of October and saw world leaders take on the biggest issues relating to climate change. With warning bells ringing about increasing global temperatures and the possible consequences of non-action, how was the event, I asked. It was amazing, she said, from several points of view. From a sort of human perceptive, perspective it was just so good to see people in two dimensions and it was also incredible incredible to be with so many other countries mrs churchill's role focuses on agri innovation which sees her looking after advances in science and how they can be used to reduce carbon emissions she praised the exciting stuff happening in and around Bury St Edmunds around agri-innovation, but said it was good to see how it was also being done worldwide at COP. Mrs Churchill said, I was lucky enough to announce funding of projects, so we are working with the Canadians, the Inuits, and doing research into basically sustainability of their lifestyle, so that was one joint project. And we were looking at the support we're giving to Brazil to do outside research labs in the rainforest and then the work we are doing in India, in the Himalayas, in Nepal, in Kenya with different groups with some of the challenges that they are having. She added, it's fine telling others to do something but actually there was that feeling of asking people to come together for a common ambition and keeping the 1.5 alive. Keeping 1.5 alive refers to reducing emissions and limiting temperature rises across the world to 1.5 degrees centigrade. 
Mrs Churchill said, tangible successes on reducing countries' use of coal had left her feeling positive. But how did she feel about India and China pushing to change the language on the final deal to phase down, not phase out, the use of coal? I think you always hope for more, I would argue, but we finalised the tougher the the toughest parts of the Paris Agreement with a common set of goals for reporting emissions. That was huge, really, really big. We also got countries to agree to revisit their emission targets by 2022. You will hear some people say, you didn't go far enough, but new pledges were made over that cash. If poorer countries are going to get there, we need to make sure that countries are helped. She added, it's important that you don't look to what they didn't pledge. But China and India both made really strong pledges, both in other areas. So making sure that we can carry on holding everybody's feet to the fire, helping where people need help and sustaining the improvement is actually what I think COP was all about. And I think in that respect, it was successful. Closer to home, one of the biggest issues in Suffolk at the moment is the provision of dental services. Dentaid, a dental charity which usually offers free treatment to homeless and vulnerable people, domestically and internationally, visited Berry early last month for two days and offered treatment to around 70 people struggling to find an NHS dentist. One resident, Hannah Vickery, said she had been in excruciating pain with a cracked tooth on the day of her visit. She had tried calling 111, who referred her to a dentist, which she thought would be more affordable, but they said she would need to pay around £280 for the work. She said she'd been left in a situation where she was either not able to afford rent that month or had to live with the pain. What did Mrs Churchill think needed to be done to alleviate some of the problems seen across the county? She firstly acknowledged Suffolk being a rural area raised issues and then said workforce is a big issue. So we have a challenge with the number of of dentists, dental technicians and dental nurses who are willing to work because there's a lot of upskilling that could go on where somebody who isn't a qualified dentist could do some of the basic work and do some of the checking and then refer on to the dentist. Berry has always had a really strong private dental market and that has become even more so. She added, I think we should look at the contract and I think we should look at who needs to go. Because if you have really good teeth Do you need to go twice a year? Could you give one of your spaces to somebody who does need the visit? And you go once a year, once every 18 months. Mrs Churchill acknowledged the problem was incredibly complex and also said previous incentivisation schemes encouraging dental staff to work in a particular area had not produced what was needed to alleviate the problems seen across the county. She said, despite her recent change in role, she was still working on training more staff and ideas to bring more capacity 
but said there was no quick fix. Mrs Churchill certainly leads a busy life. She said her working week sees her leave home in West Suffolk on a Sunday evening and she spends the majority of her time in London at the Houses of Parliament. With some residents detailing their frustration that they do not see her around the constituency often enough, what was her response? She said her working week consisted of Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, working normal working hours, plus after-hours sessions in Parliament for, for voting. She also said the past three Fridays had seen her sit in Parliament as well. There's a lot going on in Parliament, she said. Then, when I'm at home, actually COVID has been one challenge, but I am out and about. The constituency goes from Dis to Needham Market. Uh, a Berry is less than half of that, and I, and I live in Berry. I was out with friends in Berry last week. I went to the Suffolk Craft Society exhibition at the Guildhall. We dropped in there, and I was at the Lima Grain over in Woolpit last week. She added, There is one of me and 89,000 constituents. I get out as much as I can. We have lots and lots of emails. I was at the apex the other night and somebody touched me on the arm and said, you won't remember, but you did this for me two years ago. Thank you. I can't tell you. I very nearly cried because it's a very small gesture and it meant a great deal to me. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Averill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. We don't have any telephone numbers, but email addresses are hamperofhawley.com and the other one is arc com. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Mary, Sue, Carol and David, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.